So uh, growing up, um, uh, the pastor at my church uh, would wear a robe every Sunday. And I think the number one reason growing up that I, I never thought I would be a pastor is because I never saw myself wearing robes. I love sneakers too much. <laughs> and most of my time as a pastor, I do get to dress down. Uh, but there are two occasions when uh, I dress up uh, at funerals and at weddings. If you see me with a suit and a clergy collar, uh, something has died, either a person or your independence. <laughs> so I have done a few weddings um, for people at Renaissance, and uh, each time I, I do a wedding at Renaissance and I put on a clergy collar, I'm always surprised at how people treat you. One time I walked back and it was, um, I walked back to see the, the beautiful bride, and as soon as I walked in, she was like, yo, this joint is really serious. <laughs> and people, not just people at Renaissance treat me differently, but people in the street treat us differently as well. One time I was doing a wedding in LA, and uh, as I was doing a wedding in LA, we made the obligatory stop at In-N-Out to get a burger before the wedding. And uh, <laughs> the fries, though, I mean, I mean, that's another conversation. But as I walked in with the clergy collar on, like I almost forgot that I had it on, and it was like the Red Sea parted when I walked in. And this dude was like, Father, go right ahead. And I was like, well, bless you, my son. It was a long line, too. <laughs> now, most of the time, when I think about my job, like I, I get it that people see me and they think that I am holy because I work as a full-time pastor, which, Renaissance family, it's the greatest honor of my life to be your pastor. It's a tremendous honor. But there was always this concept that floats around that what I do is holy, but what you do is, eh. And my whole life, really, I, I never really understood what it meant for me to be a Christian in my workplace. So before uh, I became a pastor, I was practicing uh, law. And all of my days sitting in the hallway in the Bronx or in Yonkers and family court, I, I never really saw a connection to my faith when I was at work. I kind of just had this concept that there was this holy thing that people do on Sundays. But then Monday, I really didn't know how to connect it. All I knew was I knew I couldn't lie to people and I knew I shouldn't overcharge people. But beyond that, it really didn't see, I really didn't see a, a connection. And so really what my hope is for all of us in this series is that we would discover a theology, a different way of looking at what many of you in this room do for 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week. How could you do something for 70 hours a week and it have no connection to whatever faith you have in Jesus? And so that's our hope as we do this. And here's the big idea for today. Whatever it is you do all day long and all week long is not something outside of Jesus' calling for your life. It's right at the bullseye of it. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 3 and 17. He says, yo, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, a lot of things can fit into that category of whatever you do. And so this series, we're hoping to understand and uncover 
If you are a dentist or an actor or a stay-at-home mom or an accountant or you work in tech or you're retired or you're disabled and not able to work in traditional ways, what does it mean for you to do whatever you do in the name of the Lord Jesus, um, giving thanks to God the Father through him? Now, the biggest thing that we want to tear down is this, the wall of sacred and secular. And so, again, if you were to look at the Hebrew Bible, so the Hebrew Bible is the Old Testament, uh, the Testament that comes, uh, the Bible that Jesus himself read and, and memorized large portions of. If you were to read the Hebrew Bible, like you'll never see a word in the Hebrew Bible for spiritual. They didn't have a spiritual life. They had a life. If you were to like read through one of these books of the Bible, like Leviticus, and a lot of people uh, get bored in some of these, these old, uh, old Testament books, and one of the things that's so fascinating to me about a book like Leviticus is how much detail God puts into the ordinary details, how much God cares about the ordinariness of their lives, that their entire life, not just the temple on what they did on the Sabbath day to worship God with sacrifices and priests and all these different things, no, but on Tuesday in the marketplace, and God was and is infinitely interested, not just in our Sunday worship but in our Monday and Tuesday and Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, and our work. And so really one of the things we worked at at Renaissance is that you and I would be integrated people. What does it mean to be integrated? Meaning you are a whole person. That you do not have a separate spiritual life and a separate social life and a separate work life and a separate um, emotional life, but that all of your worlds collide and they are integrated with one and another. So that it's a seamless thing so you are not a disintegrated person. All of your life is uh, together. So today is the message and the series that we would have, that I wished I would have heard 15 years ago. So a couple of quick caveats before we hop into the scriptures for today. A lot of times when you talk about faith at work, I think people are thinking about how do you have more spiritual conversations with people about Jesus? I was talking to someone in the hallway, and I was like, I mean, so many people, when you think about faith at work, you just think about how can I Jesus juke this conversation to be about faith? So hey, somebody asks you, hey, did you uh, reconcile that report? And you're like, speaking of reconciliation, <laughs> have you been reconciled to God the Father by my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Here's the crazy thing about when you feel the pressure to have these conversations at work, it makes everybody, including you, really miserable. Because you no longer treat a person as a person in front of you, you treat them as a project to work on. And you're miserable because you're thinking, you're rehearsing, how in the world can you have a spiritual conversation with this person? They're miserable because they're being treated as an object and everybody loses. So I don't want you to think that today is gonna give you strategies on how you can Jesus juke people at work. On the other side though, I think it would be weird if you loved God and you never talked about it, the greatest commandment that Jesus says is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. How could you love something with all of you and it never comes out? You know, if you follow me on social media or if you know me in real life and we talk, you would know that this past week, uh, my youngest son just turned five. And yes, I'm so grateful for, for him and his life. And man, I just told everybody about it. 
random dudes at the bodega, I was like, yeah, my son just turned five. And they're like, all right, dude. <laughs> pepper, yes, do you want sweet peppers on your chopped cheese? Yes or no? Because it oozes out of me because I love him. I'm not looking for opportunities to tell people about him, but I love him. Now, if you were around me for a brief period, you might not hear it come up, but if you were consistently around me and you never heard me talk about my wife or my kids, you should have some alarms going off in your head that maybe something is off here. So while I definitely don't want you thinking about how do you uh, Jesus juke someone to make every conversation spiritual, I also do want us to be evaluating our own faith. How is it that I could say I love God, for those of you in the room who follow Jesus, but he, it never comes out? And so my hope is really not just in clarifying our work and all these different things. Our hope is that we grow to love God more um, and that in growing to love God more, it would ooze out of us in really natural and beautiful ways. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at this journey of faith and work. And um, one of the things that I hope you would do, particularly if you're new and you grew up Muslim or, or Jewish or you didn't grow up going to church, I really want you to commit just for these seven weeks to allow Jesus into your workplace in ways that you would not have previously. Like, I want you to start from the perspective of Jesus. I'm going to let you in to do whatever you want to do, and I'm just going to follow that. Because if you don't engage with this concept in this way, I just don't think you're going to get anything out of it. Here's one thing I've learned over the years. Sometimes God only gives us just enough light for the step ahead. That you do not see steps seven, eight, and nine in the staircase, but you only see one, one and a half. And God invites you to take steps of faith, not knowing how everything is going to be resolved. And so my hope for your heart is that you are uh, open to allowing God to shape and to reshape the way you engage with work in such a way that you're saying, Lord, I will go. Yes, I will go. Now tell me where you want me to be. So in this series, we're going to talk about a lot of different topics. We're not going to be able to cover everything today. When you think about work, one of the huge questions we get is like, well, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing? We're going to tackle, tackle all of these different topics as we lay out the series. But today, I want us to be thinking about a couple of things. One of my favorite scriptures is uh, Psalm 24 and 1. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who live in it. Let me say that again. The earth is the Lord's and everything in, in the world and all who live in it. Now, how does this pertain to work? This means that since the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that means every building, every office, every profession, everything belongs to him. Here's the thing. God cares about and is deeply interested in every single crevice of his creation. In the, uh, a couple years ago, when I took my last paternity leave, I committed myself to watching as many old, cheesy 80s and 90s movies as possible. And in my brain, these movies were a whole lot better than what they are in reality once nostalgia goes away a little bit. And uh, one of the movies I was watching is, uh, I watched, was called The Super. And it's an old 90s movie in New York and Harlem uh, with Joe Pesci. And um, it was about Joe Pesci, who was this uh, landlord who owned, who's a slumlord in Harlem. And he owned this building that he really let go to disrepair. The tenants of this building took him to court after fighting with him so often. And the judge sentenced him to live for six months in his own building. So for six months, he got an up-close up close and personal view 
of how badly he had let this building fall into disrepair. And finally, you know, as many of you would guess, he ends up you know, making friends and fixing up the building. And as I was thinking about it, I thought to myself, I, I think a lot of us think that God is a slumlord. I think a lot of us think that God would have his creation and he could let it go into complete disrepair and he doesn't care about it. That God would see all the dysfunction in every single crevice of the world and God would just walk away not caring about it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it and they that dwell therein. And God cares about every single crevice of his creation, including your work. And so there's a scripture, oh, I'm sorry, a quote by a man named Abraham Kuyper, and he says this beautifully profound quote. He says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God is interested in his creation, in science, in art, in music, in theater, in food, in law, in medicine, in sports, in education, in entertainment, in tech. Everything is his, and God wants to see all of it renewed. And so whatever you do all day long is not outside of Jesus' calling for your life. It is very as at the very bullseye and the center of it. And so I want to give us a little bit of a framework today on a, a good theology of work. Uh, a couple of things that I want us paying attention to. Number one, God created work and work is good. God created work and work is good. Now, some of y'all, I lost half of the room on that right there. Because some of y'all like, listen, slams laptop shut. Don't come for me. Don't talk to me. I am leaving this behind. Work is something that we want to escape from. But when you look at the earliest pages of scripture, you see that God himself is a worker. God created things. And before the fall of man, before sin was even introduced into the world, God created humans to work. Now, in Scripture, you see Genesis 1, and it's referred to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the utopia. It is the picture of how life and humanity should be. It is perfection. Walking with God with no hindrances, no isms, um, uh, no Tom Brady. It is the perfect... <laughs> depiction of what life is. And so when you see this beauty, this, this perfection of what life is, here's what you see in Genesis 1 and 15. It says, the Lord God took man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. God created work and, and work is good. Now, clearly, there's so many dysfunctions in our work that we encounter on a, on a day-to-day basis. But the essence of work is something that is good. And I don't want you thinking that work is something you need to be delivered from but rather, how do we experience a renewed version of our work? So here's the definition of work. Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that helps the world thrive and flourish. I'm saying that again to make sure everybody's on the same page. Work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that helps the world thrive and flourish. So a lot of you... Um, actually, we're going to move on to the, to the second point. So secondly, if we're going to really understand our work, number one, we need to understand that God created it and work is good. But secondly, we truly need to understand how God uses our work. Man, oh man, this was the biggest hurdle for me. So if you think about how God might use your work, I think a lot of us, when we think about like really important uh, things like this guy Scott Harrison, he created this thing called Charity Water. 
Charity Water, their main and only goal is a world where they eradicate waterborne illnesses and they want to provide clean drinking water to everybody on the planet. And they have quite literally saved probably millions, hundreds of thousands of lives because of this endeavor. When you think about his work, you're like, yes, clearly he's doing something that's amazing. But like, dude, I, I, I work, I'm an accountant, like I'm not saving lives. Nobody's life is saved because of the spreadsheet I put in. So how does God use our work? How does God use your work? God uses your work by allowing you to rearrange the raw material of what you have so that people could flourish. So to really flesh this out, I want to look at a scripture in Matthew 6. Traditionally, this scripture is talked about when we talk about anxiety, but this also talks about our work. Matthew 6, 25 to 34, Jesus is speaking. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any one of you add one moment to his life by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even King Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, O ye of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you go back to verse 33, Jesus makes a profound promise. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here's what he says, all of these things God will provide for you. So the million-dollar question is this. How does God provide for you? How does God provide you with food and with clothes? Now, theologians would call this the, the doctrine of vocation, which means God uses our ordinary work to fulfill his promises. So for those of you who stopped at a bodega on the way in and got a bacon, egg, and cheese, for God to have provided you with your daily bread, with food, there was first a farmer who sowed some wheat in the ground. And then there were farm, uh, people who plucked the grain and harvested all of them. And then they harvested everything and sent all the raw materials to a bakery. The bakery baked bread. Truckers uh, transported all of the bread to uh, grocery stores. Grocery store workers stocked the shelves, made sure everything was good. Cashiers checked you out at the register. And then it was, uh, then you took that home and uh, or, or stuff goes to the bodega, and there's a cook at the bodega in the back, blessing reggaeton, making food, making sandwiches. Before you ever got that bacon, a lot of places have beef bacon. There was a, there's slaughterhouses, people who work in all these different places. You guys get the point. There are countless dozens of people who have worked together in concert to provide you with your food. God uses our ordinary stuff, our ordinary work, 
to provide for people. Now, I want to drill down on a couple of different professions that I get a lot of questions uh, about. So one of the things that I've, I've noticed um, is that God works through people in the ordinary stations of our lives that he has called us to, to care for his creation. You know, one of the things that probably my wife and I spend a lot of mental energy thinking about is our children and their education and their school. And the other day I went to pick up my son, my oldest, and uh, his teacher just had this big smile on her face and talked about um, how good of a week he had. And it like made my weekend. It, it's, we were so happy and so elated because we pray so much for him. And we're, we're so grateful for everybody who is contributing to his thriving. Now, we go at home every single night and we pray for our kids. We pray for their education. We pray for them to thrive. And God answers our prayers, not through some miraculous thing that happens, but he answers it through an ordinary person. You and I are the answers to people's prayers. One of the, another thing that I think about a lot for people who work in, in tech, a good product is something that makes life easy and enjoyable. You know, my family right now has this new digital photo frame where we get to upload photos uh, to my parents' um, uh, uh, kitchen device, this photo frame, and we can just push photos there. And my mother just talks about how much she loves seeing the memories and seeing the things that are happening. In real time, we're just pushing. We can all upload photos to the frame. And someone might be working at this office thinking, all I'm doing is designing an app, but you're not just designing an app. You're designing something for a family to just have enjoyment, to sit back and look at beauty, to sit back and enjoy memories that are being created, to have a flashback of something that happened 10 years ago for a good laugh. Now, when people, we live in a, y'all, we live in a tough world, man. If you go online and you hear about all the things that happen, uh, one of the things I think is really underformed in Christian spaces and Christian circles is a theology of delight. So this is particularly true for those of you who work in entertainment or the arts. A lot of times people say, well, Jordan, what you do is holy and good, but like I'm just, I'm an actor or I, I, I work in music. And I think it's because they think what they do is less holy because we have an underformed and a really scrawny theology of delight. In the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve all of these beautiful, beautiful things and all of this beauty to enjoy and to delight in. Yes, he gave them a restriction to not eat from this one tree, but he wanted them to delight in the things that he had created for them. My wife and I will take my kids out, and like one of the things, we're both foodies, it grieves me as a father when we take our kids to like an amazing restaurant and they just want chicken nuggets and french fries. <laughs> like I think the heart of a father is that I want you to enjoy the beauty that I have provided for you. God loves beautiful things. Scripture says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Have you ever seen a beautiful sunset? One of these sunsets that just, that just takes your breath away. God creates these beautiful things because God wants us to enjoy. He wants us to stop and to look up and to see the beauty of his handiwork. And if you work in an industry that is meant to bring people joy, like joy is a good thing. Delight is a good thing. You and I are hardwired for, for pleasure. Of course, there are prohibitions to the way we seek after these things, but God wants people to, to listen to a beautiful song and to be inspired. And so there is no sacred and, and secular. God wants to use all of the, our work to bless people. And God wants us to have an imagination about our jobs 
that God can use everything, even the mundane, for his glory. You know, one of the things I think about if you were to read the scripture and go really slowly through different passages of a, a particular account, there's a scripture in Luke where it talks about a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus uh, has this encounter with Jesus that changed his life. And as the scripture tells the story, it says that Zacchaeus, because of the crowd and because he was short, he had to climb up a tree in order to get a view of Jesus. But check this out. 20 years ago, somebody had planted that tree, never knowing that one day someone would use that thing that they planted to encounter Jesus. For many of you, you might never see the fruit. You might never see the result of your labor now, but it doesn't mean that God is not inviting you commanding you even to be a part of blessing his people through your work. And so there's a scripture that I want us thinking about in um, 1 Peter 2 and 9. It's a profound scripture that we can't get through all of it today, but I just want to mention one or two things from it. It says in 1 Peter 2, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession." so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Scripture says that you, you are God's chosen possession. And check this out. Because you are God's, for everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, because you are God's, who you are and what you do has acquired new value, not because of you, but because of whose you are. Years ago, there was this auction for um, a pair of sneakers and uh, these sneakers sold for like $100,000. And if you were to look at these sneakers uh, without context, you would be very confused as to why these sneakers sold for so much. They're not made of gold or anything like that. But if you were to understand the story, you would know why they were so valuable. These were a pair of running sneakers owned by Michael Jordan. And simply because they were owned by the second best basketball player in human history, <laughs> Simply because of that fact, they acquired a value that is astronomical. What does, what does the scripture say? Scripture says you are a people for his possession. You are his. You're not just a waiter. You're his waiter. You're not just a tech worker. You're his tech worker. You're not just a stay-at-home mom. You're his stay-at-home mom. We acquire value. We have value, not because of how objectively amazing what we do is or isn't. It's because of the one to whom we belong. So our work, no matter what, should be to pass on the blessing of God to everyone. And so this is pushing us towards the third point, that work is meant to remind us of the gospel. So number one, God created work and work is good. Number two, God uses our ordinary work. Uh, and I, I do want to say also, that is both paid and unpaid work. So if you're retired and the things that you do, the investments you're making in people, um, it could just be babysitting grandkids. Lord knows that is a blessing from on high. Uh, God uses your ordinary work. You know what I was thinking about even? Last week we had Baptism Sunday at Renaissance. And um, when you think about the stories that people share, I think about all of the people that have played a part into that one moment that we're able to all celebrate together. Oftentimes, I get credit because I'm a pastor on stage with a microphone, 
but there are so many people who have played a part in, this, in everybody's journey from you all, the community, and the work that you put to go to a DNA group when you didn't feel like going, or to invite someone, or down to the person who filled up the baptismal pool. God uses all of our work, however ordinary, and God is inviting us to reimagine how we see everything that we are doing. So number three, work is also meant to remind us of the gospel. And here's how, that does, how it does that. In a very concrete and practical sense, the highest value for everybody who is a Christian is service. Jesus was a servant. Uh, years ago when I was in law school, one of my friends, uh, he had grown up with a lot of really bad baggage of really corrupt stuff that happened in churches. And he said, yo, Jordan, like, I don't mess with church. I don't mess with Christians. I've seen so much corruption. And he was right. He, he had seen a tremendous amount of dysfunction. And he had tried his best to walk away from Jesus as well, to throw out both the baby and the bathwater. But I'll never forget this one conversation where he said, Jordan, there's this one scripture that it just, it, I can't stop thinking about it. Like, this is the one scripture that if I were to believe in Jesus, this is, this is why. And it was a story where Jesus, before he was about to get crucified, he's with his disciples, and he takes a towel, and he wraps around his waist, and he washes up. He gets down on his knees, and he washes everybody's feet. It was something so bizarre for his disciples that they were recalling, saying, nah, Jesus, you can't do that. Like, this is, this is not for you to do. This is for servants. And Jesus said, unless I can wash you, you have no part of me. Jesus didn't just do servanty things. He was a servant. And how could you follow a servant and not also be a servant? So what Jesus is inviting us into is not just to do a bunch of random things, but a new way of seeing yourself. That the highest title you can get is not CEO, it's a servant. Here's what James says, Jesus' brother in James 1. He says, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting because James was Jesus' brother, and if it was me, I would be name-dropping. Jordan, the brother of Jesus. Y'all not going to be talking to me any old kind of way. But James says the highest title, the point to brag about, was that he was a servant. This is the invitation of what our work is meant to do. It's meant to remind us that you and I are servants. So let me first break down the word. The word servant in the scripture is doulos. And doulos essentially is a concept for in the Roman Empire where if you were not a Roman citizen, it was like really difficult to thrive in a Roman province by yourself. Unless you had money uh, from generations, like it was really hard for you. So what some people would do is they would become a servant for an agreed amount of time. And what they were doing is acknowledging that someone had paid their way into this new kingdom in a way that they could have never paid for themselves. And as a result, they would now see themselves and would function as servants in order to acknowledge the debt that had been paid for them that they could have never paid on their own. Scripturally, when Scripture says that you and I are servants, when James is saying he was a servant of God, he is saying that once upon a time, I was in the kingdom of darkness. I had no inheritance from God. There was nothing good on my own. And Jesus went to the cross on my behalf and paid a debt that I could have never paid. And as a result, the way I see myself is not just a Christian who goes to church, but I see myself as a servant indebted to Jesus for what he has paid for me 
all of my sins nailed to the cross. And that is the identity of everybody who has placed their faith in Christ. And so our work will connect to your faith tomorrow morning when you make the switch from this job is to provide me with popularity, with purpose, with a paycheck, to I am meant to be a servant in every setting that I find myself in, whether that work is paid or unpaid. Very quickly, if you see your, if you're like in a space, and I, because this scripture has also been weaponized in different ways, uh, particularly uh, if you belong to a marginalized people group. And so if you belong to, if you're a black woman at a job where they're holding you down just because you're a black woman, I don't want you thinking about this, well, I'm just a servant, I won't say anything. No, I want you thinking that you are a servant of the generation coming behind you. And there's some things that you need to shatter uh, in order for people's thriving around you. So this is not passive, this is meant to be active, but it's meant to switch the way that we see ourselves at work. Your job would change so much if you saw yourself not as entitled, but as a servant. And that is meant to remind you of this beautiful gospel truth. A couple years ago, I was talking to a guy at Renaissance who was uh, a part of a Broadway show, a very, pre uh, very prestigious Broadway show, and he had a very prominent role at this extremely uh, prestigious show on Broadway. And we were talking, and I was like, man, you've been at this show for like for years. And like, how do you muster up the strength to do the same show over and over and over again for years and years and years? And he said, you know what? Honestly, man, like people spend their entire year's budget planning around taking a trip to New York City. And then they plan their entire New York City trip around coming to this show. And these people are going to walk into this theater, and I have to give it all that I have because it's not for me to be on Instagram showing that I know famous people. It's, it's for them. He saw himself as a servant. Somebody of his stature, he easily could have been entitled a million times over. And to be honest, I wouldn't have been mad at him if he said that. But he saw himself as, as a servant. You know, whatever you do, whether it's in the big lights of Broadway or it's something more mundane, if you see yourself as a servant, it will change the way you engage with work. This past Thursday, on my son's birthday, <laughs> we went to uh, the carousel in Bryant Park, and the dude collecting the tickets at Bryant Park could not have been more miserable. <laughs> like, he just actively, just, like, he didn't even like make eye contact, he just looked the whole time. <laughs> Go this way. He was just like really miserable. And I was thinking about it this whole, this whole weekend, honestly, as I was preparing for today. Like that job that he is doing, clearly it doesn't provide him with any meaning and purpose and prestige or any of the things that we seek to get from work. But like, I wonder if he were to talk to a parent who thought to themselves, like, yo, all day long, for my son's birthday, we've been dreaming about this carousel ride. And as he rides around in these little plastic horses three miles an hour, the delight we felt of watching him delight. What if he saw himself as not a person who's supposed to take from work, but supposed to be a servant? That he is providing people with experiences that they'll cherish, that they will cherish. The way I want you to go to your job tomorrow is to see yourself not as taking from your work, but as a servant. And in doing so, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
So Lord, we thank you just for, uh, man, this, this journey that we're beginning on. And I, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be more and more attuned to you, that we would be a peculiar people, a peculiar people who engage with work in much different ways. And Lord, would you equip us, embolden us to be your servants tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.